it's important for somebody to go, stop a minute, that thing you want to do, here's how we're going to do it, here's the plan, here's the return on investment, and here's the systems and processes we're going to put in place to make sure that the thing you want to do is really successful. I'm Mark Goodell from M3 Networks. We are an IT support and cybersecurity specialist because we know that running a business is hard enough as it is right without IT causing more headaches and frustration, which is why we aim to make IT an enjoyable experience for our customers. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, check us out at m3networks.co.uk. I'm delighted to be joined today by Alison Henderson, who's the CEO of Dundee and Angus Chamber of Commerce. So thanks for taking some time out of your day, Alison, to come and join me. You're welcome. So yeah, maybe tell us a bit about kind of your background, your role at the Chamber and ultimately what the Chamber does and its purpose and how it serves its members. I'm a Dundonian, born and bred and never quite escaped. And I'm all the more thankful for that because the city and the kind of the region is really going through such a lot of exciting changes at the moment. It's really nice to be at the heart of that. Um, My background though is that I come from a family that ran their own businesses and that did scar me slightly. So my gran and granddad were really entrepreneurial. And I think that was maybe a post-war thing. They both ran several businesses and then my dad got involved. And when you're second generation in a family business, you don't always have that same fire and drive for it. I watched him not particularly enjoy what he was doing. And I thought, oh, that's not for me. I'm not going to go into the family business. I just didn't see myself in that. So I kind of went and did some normal jobs for a long time. And then fast forward to the age of 40, I got made redundant. So that's the first and only time that's ever happened to me. But it was incredibly shocking. Just the weirdest, most horrible thing that I went through, I think. And it feels really, really personal, but you know it's not. It's difficult not to kind of go, well, why was I picked in that team when others weren't? Just really weird. Having said that, you know, I was pretty lucky that it was in an early wave of redundancies at a company. So we were lucky with the package we got. So that happened to me on the 1st of December 2008. And by the middle of the month, after I'd kind of calmed down emotionally, spent December having lunches and and kind of catching up with people, if they'd offered me my job back, I wouldn't have taken it. And I'd been there quite a long time, 11 years, I was stuck. So as a kind of a leader, now you look at other people or some people, you know, even just friends. And I think if you're in a good business that looks after its people well, final salary scheme, bonus, a 10 minute commute, it's easy to get stuck. And I wasn't particularly happy. So it was the right thing for the business. It was the right thing for me. So I started a business and that was a real culture shock. But I think having gone through all of that, that was then what led me to my role at the Chamber because I was a Chamber member from nearly the beginning of my business and networking and making connections is really important because I came out of a big business with no local connections. So people sort of say, oh yeah, you started as a consultant or you must have brought loads of your existing customers and your existing business with you. And I didn't do any of that. I started from the ground up. So the Chamber and other networking was, was hugely important. And that was where we first met, wasn't it? So we met at networking in Perth. You have to get your elbows out, don't you, and get out and, and kind of meet people to build your local network. So when the role at the Chamber came up, I was on the board, actually, uh, volunteering and did a little bit of support to help between CEOs. And during that time, I really, really wasn't interested in applying for the role because I was running two businesses by that stage. 
But too many of the members sort of nudged me and said, well, surely you're going to apply for the job. And I was like, in the beginning, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And then I began to kind of then, when you can kind of see inside the business and when you're a member, you go, well, if we did that and if that was in place and that's an opportunity. So it became too interesting. And you know, you said earlier when we were chatting that you like starting things. It was one of these things on my to-do list to like start a podcast probably for about a year and a half. And I, I came to the conclusion that technically I can, I can record it. Technically, I could edit it to a point and I know I can set up systems. And But I thought the problem is, though, if it, if it relies on me, only me, to do all of that on a regular basis, it will start, and it will, but it will fail quickly. One thing I've learned about myself is that I'm terrible at executing things. I'm great with ideas. I'm great at starting things. But once it's started, I lose interest. That's me all over. So I think I was five, six years into running my own business. I'd started another smaller business. And I think I stupidly thought I can manage them all because the president at the time was hugely inspiring. He was running two or three businesses himself. And I thought, oh, it's great. Yes, I'll apply for this job and see what happens in the proper scheme of things, go through all the interview processes. But if I was to be successful, I thought I could learn a lot from that guy that was the president and I was passionate about it I think when you're doing interviews and, and stuff people know that you're kind of passionate about it don't they so yeah and that was 2014 so I can't believe it's more than seven years but the chamber has just changed so much so I'm really kind of grateful actually because I did say oh I think I'm unemployable you know you start your own business and you can go mm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm now employable but the chamber gives me the best of both worlds which is I'm running a business, but I'm kind of the caretaker of it because it's for members, it's for the business community. But I've got a really supportive board of directors and that's been hugely helpful for me and making me a better CEO, definitely. So yeah, I mean, the purpose of the chamber is what gets me out of bed in the morning is supporting businesses and being businesses champion for the region. But also, you know, our, our kind of our strap line, our tagline is all about connecting, communicating and developing businesses and again that's at the core of, of what really I enjoy you know I'm one of these people that can be standing in a room talking to people and going well if you just talk to them I know that they're looking for a web designer or I know that they're having the same challenges as you are therefore I'll put you together and then it's up to them what kind of comes of it so yeah that's the bit that really excites me. It's interesting when you talk about redundancy and how you felt about it obviously you probably know it was only actually the year after you were made redundant. That's what happened to me, Mark and Mary and how we started M3. It was slightly different for us in that the whole business was being closed down. So it was like a voluntary liquidation of a company. But it's interesting that the stigma of being made redundant, like when you say to people, oh, I was made redundant. And always in my mind, I'm always thinking, are people thinking that I wasn't good? Like the reason that you were made redundant is because you weren't good at what you did. And it's not true. Businesses make redundancies, you know, not because they choose to, usually because they're forced into a situation to do it. Just like our situation, it's really interesting. And I always have that in the back of my mind when I say to people, oh yeah, I was made, you know, made redundant. That's how we started the business. And where people attach any negativity to that. So it's interesting that it's kind of how you made you feel, you know. Yeah, it is an odd thing. But in some ways it's becoming a bit more accepted, isn't it? Because... In all that time, you know, since that kind of credit crunch and whatnot, an awful lot of people have gone through it. But yeah, I, 
it's just a really weird feeling. And I think I'm also a very private person, so it's interesting that you didn't know that about me. So I'm not very good at sharing personal stuff. But when somebody else tells me they've been made redundant, I always talk about it because I made a point, and I, well, I didn't do it on purpose, but I, I turned that into a positive. And I think that's the only thing you can do is, for me, I kind of learned through all that process that the bit about it that I struggled with was that it took it out of my control. So somebody else has got the power to do something like that to you. That was the bit that was the difficult bit for me. So, and it, that's what drove me to start my business because then I was responsible for what happened to me. And I really, actually, that really kind of sets me on fire. I really like that bit, but then when you start to employ other people, you recognise what a huge responsibility that is. That's taken me ages to to kind of get a bit more grown up about that too. I think any, ourselves included, and you probably say the same thing, I guess, but everyone I've spoken to over the years that has been made redundant usually said, actually, it was one of the best things that ever happened. You probably wouldn't have made the decision to leave and set up your own business had that not happened. You know, the opportunity for us to start M3 happened. We didn't plan it to happen. It very happened very, very quickly. Within the space of like a week, went from, hey, we've got a job, we're all working, to, oh, right, now I don't have a job, now I don't have a company car. Okay, how are we going to pay the bills this month? And I've got a six-month-old daughter at home, right? So then suddenly you go, well, here's an opportunity for us just to hit the ground running and let's go for it. And I think we... You know, like you said, people automatically think that you take business with you. I mean, we were fortunate that we did take a handful of clients because the company was shut down. We had customers that needed what we did. So we did start the business with, I think, about six or seven IT support customers. And, you know, they stood by us. And actually, I think all of them are still with us as customers. So it's weird when we say we've got customers that we've worked with even longer than M3's been alive, you know, (laughs) as a business. So, you know, this is our 13th year, but, you know, we've got customers that we've been supporting for like 15 years because I knew them for two years prior. It's really interesting. So those customers kind of helped give us that kind of start because we had business that needed us there. It does obviously help. And I think obviously over the last two years, there's been a lot of redundancies, obviously with COVID and a lot of people have taken an opportunity to set up their own business. So how many of those people will stay doing that after things are kind of starting to get back to normal or, or what I think will be, remains to be seen. Certainly a lot of people have seen the opportunity, especially with the fact that we've had the biggest working from home experiment on the planet. Yeah. So I think a lot of people realise that actually I can work from home. I think a lot of people thought, setting up a business, I've got to go and get an office, I've got to go and do all this stuff. Now people go, well actually, I've got a MacBook, I've got an internet connection and I've got a kitchen table. I can run a business and I can do something that other people will pay me to do. Uh, so yeah, definitely a massive, massive opportunity there. So but thanks for sharing that. I mentioned obviously working from home. One of the things I kind of wanted to ask you about, and because you, I think, were probably, the Chamber was probably, I think, one of the first businesses that we onboarded entirely remotely as a customer during COVID. So I checked, it was just over a year ago, it was the middle of last March, that the Chamber came on board for support. So, and I know we completely onboarded all of the staff remotely and from our point of view, it went really smoothly, but I just wanted to kind of get it from your point of view. I know I was dealing with Donna and she was kind of our go-to person for coordinating everything, but how did that kind of go for you guys to change IT provider during that situation? The honest answer is I never noticed. I mean, we, we obviously did it, but the beauty of it is that it happened virtually seamlessly and we were 
talking about how do you kind of build your business and how do you not work 22 hour days when you're running the business and you've got to get people that are really good in your team that you trust to do a really good job so Donna just is just amazing in our team and just took control of it all so yeah and I I mean I know that she has really regular conversations with people at your end and yeah I can honestly say it didn't really impact me an awful lot which is a really good thing that's kind of how it should be. It's such a big thing. And it's interesting, actually, because what you said earlier about when you're working for someone, you've got a nice, easy commute and stuff. It's easy to then get stuck where you are because you think, well, the perceived like pain of kind of stepping out or changing a provider or, or changing an employer or setting up your own business, you go, well, if everything is okay as it is, we see that a lot of companies like that in their IT situation, like the perceived pain of changing provider. Because I always say that changing IT companies, like changing your accountant or changing your bank, it's not something you want to do on a regular basis. And usually there has to be a real pain before you go, right, that's it. We're definitely, we've made a decision to move. But quite often the pain can be temporary and things get better again. So it's kind of like that relationship where it can be really good, it can be really bad, but over the period of time, it's kind of averages and evens itself out. But you guys did it during the pandemic when a lot of people weren't changing, you know, providing things. So yeah, it's really interesting. It's great that you say that it was almost seamless and unnoticeable to you. And again, yeah, credit to Donna. It's really good for us as well that we have, when we have a person at the customer's end, that is like the IT go-to person who can coordinate things as well. Because it's not always like that. You know, some customers we deal directly with the business owner. And of course, business owners, you know, have got a million other things going on and IT is just one thing in a massive to-do list. So it's really nice when customers have someone at their end who's dedicated to focus on that. As much as we maybe made it easy for you guys, Donna really helped make it easy from our point of view as well. So we need to make sure we tag her in these, uh, the posts that go out on this so she gets all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> The Texas 10. I've not asked these for quite a while. I've not done a guest episode for a little while now, so I need to kind of refresh my mind. The plan was when I first did these questions was that they were going to be like, you've got 60 seconds to answer all of them, but that's never happened. And no one's even answered one question, I think, in 60 seconds. It's on you to answer them as quickly or take the time to answer them. It's your episode. The first question is, if you had £100 million to spend, what would you spend it on? That's really interesting. So I guess some of the first things would be the serotonin stuff. So definitely a really nice car and it would be electric. So we're looking at a lot of things as a business, but also kind of within the team trying to kind of encourage some really good habits. And we've had a programme called Circular Tayside running with Zero Way Scotland for ages. And before I got involved with that, I had no idea what the circular economy was, which is kind of shocking, isn't it? You know, it's only three, maybe four years ago. So I've learned loads about the circular economy. But through that, you know, net zero is now something that everybody's talking about. So as a team, we've just gone through the Royal Geographical Society, based in Perth, to climate solutions training. And it's absolutely scary and shocking that I didn't know how bad things were in the planet. But we've been doing a lot of this inside the business and we run a, a fully electric pool car for the team. So, you know, to kind of take out that mileage for business meetings and whatnot. And we've just brought in 
a salary sacrifice electric vehicle scheme for some of the team. We're testing that as a pilot. So, and actually, there are some really amazing electric cars that I didn't even know were things, such as a Mustang. So I'm like, ooh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> but I quite like a brand. So before I got the app and I've been looking at the app this week, I was like, well, I do really like a Tesla. But I'm actually a wee bit scared of what Elon Musk is doing now. So, yeah, with his purchase of Twitter and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, definitely a really nice car and a really nice electric car on holidays. I just would just, apart from the fact that I've had an absolute trauma trying to take two weeks off. (laughs) I don't know what I'd be like if I actually just disappeared off for a while. But, yeah, I think that would be the early stuff. And then I would absolutely pay off family mortgages and kind of you know, do some of that stuff. And then I've no idea. £100 million is too much. That's too much to get, isn't it? We had a conversation in the team and we were talking about what we'd do if you got a million pounds. That's a bit easier to cope with. £100 million yeah. is... Maybe I should change my question for people because 100 million is, is is a lot, like you say. A million pound, you have to be more careful of a million pound. Because I think nowadays a million pound isn't that much money. Not no. Not these days. No, not um, when you're old like me and you're looking at your pension mark. Jeez, oh, I feel like an <laughs> ancient person now, even thinking about that stuff. But, you know, however much you've got in your pension, it's not enough. Yeah, that's a, a reality. Reality check. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> take away for today. However much you have in your pension is not enough money. Oh, God, now yeah. we're depressed, don't we? <laughs> I know. We'll move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> what is one of the most important things that you've learned in your life so far? Oh, and hands down, it's to listen to your gut instinct. Anytime I haven't listened to it, it's come back to bite me in the bum. Every time. And it's funny because even when I was younger, you know, you don't have the confidence to listen to it when you're younger, do you? So that sounds a wee bit trite, but yeah, I can honestly say that it doesn't let me down. And I went it down when I don't listen to it. 100% right. The amount of times in your life you probably went... I knew that was going to happen. I should have, I should, I, I knew it. I, I said it at the beginning and it's happened and I should have listened to what I felt at the beginning. It's weird though, this, people say you, you make decisions with your head and, or with your heart, but there's a third one, your gut instinct, which is something you can't really put your finger on, is it? It's just a yeah. feeling you get. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Next question is a quick one. Okay. But it is a question that makes or breaks friendships here, okay? <laughs> which is... Does pineapple belong on pizza? Oh, not in a million years. Right. And I'm all you guys pizza as well, I believe. So we'll make sure there's no pineapple. Excellent. What does belong on pizza is mushroom every day of the week. Oh, see, I don't eat mushrooms at all. But I don't have anything against people who want mushrooms on a pizza because if that's their thing, that's fine. Just not pineapple. No. Just... Or anchovies. I mean, that's another weird thing, isn't it? Like, who eats anchovies it. on a pizza? Yeah. I've heard of tuna on a pizza as well. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I mean, I like tuna, but it should be in tuna pasta bake, not on a pizza. Oh, no, I don't know. So, no, 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 don't invite me down for tuna pasta bake either. I can't, don't really yuck. No. No, no it's cat food um, mixed in with your pasta. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually one of the things that I cook really well that the family all enjoys and eats. So, you know, it's my forte. So, and well. <laughs> what would your walkout song be? Walking on the stage for whatever it is you're doing. Um, What's your theme tune? I have no idea. I really don't have one. Honestly, truly that, I really don't have one. It's as bad as if you'd said, and I know you wouldn't have asked this, but what was your wedding song? So 
me and my husband, we're about to have our 25th wedding anniversary, which again makes me feel ancient. But we don't have a song. And when the wedding band said to us, right, what do you want your first dance to be to? We just looked at each other blankly and went, mm, we don't know. So they picked a song. We both know it was the Beatles, but neither of us are very sure what it was to this day, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so I think the thing about music is that I love everything. So I, I really like, I mean, I really love the music I grew up with like in the 70s and 80s, but I really like the really up-to-date stuff as well. So yeah, I, I think the problem with my walkout song is it would change, which as people will know me know, they change my mind all the time. So yeah. Pick it I, five minutes before you're going to walk on stage. Literally would. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could have dinner with three people, not having tuna pasta bait... And those people can be dead or alive. Who would you choose? Okay, so I would definitely choose George Michael because he was the love of my life before I met my husband. <laughs> and I saw him live a couple of times, but I would have loved to have sat down and, and kind of, yeah. So George Michael, Doris Day. For many of the same reasons, I absolutely love, like, the films that she did. I just thought, you know, like, that's somebody that was just always happy. And she had a really nice voice, and I've got a terrible singing voice. So, yeah, definitely the two of them. So those are just for, I think she would be huge fun. He would be really interesting. And then and then I would have to um, add the third person would be my mum. So... My mum died when I was, just before I got married. So I didn't have my mum when I got married. She never met my son. And it's been a long, long time since uh, I kind of was with my mum. So yeah, I'd quite like my mum to be there. Oh, that's good good answers, actually. What, you know what's really interesting about this question is that not many people actually have said that they would pick like a relative that's passed away. Most people just pick three famous people or something like that. I think <laughs> you may be the first person that's, that's done that. I would certainly do that. Because I'm the same, like like my nana, I was really, I was quite close to, and she's not met any of my kids. So it'd be great to do that. So I would definitely do that as well. But then I'd definitely have some famous people in there too, you know. So, but yeah, I've never disclosed my full three people. So I'll wait until someone asks me that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could have any superhero power, this is a really interesting question. I've heard some great answers on this. Um, what would be your superhero power? Uh, so... Again, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because I don't know if everybody does this, but I've got a bit of a recurring dream and I fly in this dream. So I'd quite like to be able to fly. I think that would be pretty cool. So I've got a very specific way of flying. And again, it comes down to a childhood thing. So the old, the original Peter Pan films where they kind of glide, that's how I would fly. So the way that Peter Pan jumps out of the window from the kid's bedroom once he's caught his shadow. That's the way I would fly. So that's pretty cool. It's not majorly superhero, is it? I guess the other thing, so if I'm getting to which I'm cheating at, the ability to teleport would be good because I'm better now, but pre-COVID, I was always slightly late everywhere I went. I've got a really bad habit of just do one more thing or just do one more thing before I leave or just do one more thing before I kind of move on to that thing. So if you could teleport, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. You would just click your fingers and you'd be off. So that would work. 
I think I'd give teleportation to my colleague Mark Lamb as well. If you've ever been in any meetings with Mark, I'm not sure if you have been or not, but Mark's always, I think, like that as well, where he's always slightly late for every meeting because it's always like, oh, he's just, probably in his mind, it's the same thing. Oh, I'll just do one more thing. I'll just get this next thing done and then I'll go. Because I'm a few minutes late, it won't really be the end of the world, but I've got one other thing done. So I think teleportation <laughs> would be great for Mark. I think he also massively underestimates the amount of time it takes to get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like Mark will have like a meeting at like 11 o'clock in Edinburgh and it's like 10.26 and he's still in the office and it's like aren't you going to Edinburgh Mark? Yeah I've got half an hour I'm like but Mark you're not going to get there park find somewhere to park walk from the car park like you just think that Edinburgh is like a half an hour well it isn't really there's the other time that it takes so but I always like to build in contingency what if I can't find a parking space you know So this is the thing so it was interesting isn't it? you were talking about Mark Lamb so he sounds like me so I'm an optimist and I always wore that as a badge of pride. Oh my God, it's the best thing ever to be an optimist. And then I did some coaching with a very good friend of mine, Eleanor. And, you know, you do all these personality things and one of them came back and I was wildly optimistic. And she said to me, oh, that's bad. And I was like, what do you mean it's bad? It's, of course it's not bad. I drive into Tesco car park, drive right up to the door, knowing that there's going to be a space for me right at the door. And genuinely, hand on heart, I could tell you nine times out of ten, there is a space, like two or three from the front door, which my husband hates, by the way, because he's the opposite. And she said to me, but being overly optimistic will get you in trouble from a work point of view. And I said, all right, tell me a wee bit more about that. She said, well, you, and I've seen it actually, that I am optimistic about the amount of time I've got or the capacity maybe of our business to cope with something. So I'll go, yeah, we can do that. Where's the realism in that? Or mm. I'm optimistic about how long it's going to take me to get someplace. So I completely, me and Mark Glam would be a disaster working together because we'd be <laughs> both exactly the same. He probably does what I do, which is put Google Maps on when I'm going any place of a reasonable distance and then I try and beat myself <laughs> so I'm like oh look I'm going to get there two minutes faster than Google Maps says yeehaw I'm winning I guess optimism is good sometimes I need to be more optimistic in certain situations but I recently did one of these personality tests I can't remember what it's called it's like an emaneagram or something like that I'll probably need to find it and link to it in the show notes but yeah um, it basically gives you a number. So I think it's the numbers like one to nine of personality types and it then shows you other numbers that will stress you out or you're compatible with other people. And I came out as a six and a six is people that they say have an inherent kind of distrust of the world, right? Which seems really extreme, but it talks about like you like to be in a place of security and you're always building security. I'm like that, like I like like I stockpile stuff like mm -hmm. you know in the house or like I like to know where I'm going I like to have things planned in that security of knowing that if something happens on the way to Edinburgh then I've got enough time that I can, I've got contingency and things so it's really interesting and I emailed that to the rest of the team and people were then posting their results and saying oh this is what my number is and stuff and it's scarily accurate like it's when you read it for all that stuff like, I love it like, yeah they're like, oh, that's me. Like, that's me to a T. Like, and all I did was answer a series of like questions on a page and then it's like, boom, there you are. And yeah. it's really interesting, actually. The good thing about this one is it shows you your traits when you're kind of at your best and at your worst, yeah. you know, so you can understand both sides of it. Yeah. And this is why it's important to have people that have got a whole mix of all that in your team, isn't it? So you'll probably balance Mark out and he balances you out. I know that 
I think as an optimist, more inclined to take more risks. We've just brought somebody into our team in a CEO role. And it's hugely beneficial for me because it's having that foil to me. So very creative, externally focused. And sometimes that puts strain internally on the team because everybody's then running to try and catch up with my ideas. Whereas it's important for somebody to go, well, stop a minute, that thing you want to do, here's how we're going to do it. Here's the plan. Here's the return on investment. And here's the systems and processes we're going to put in place to make sure that the thing you want to do is really successful. And actually, I'm really glad that our board were able to kind of let us invest in that role in a a time where everybody's going through COVID and it's all a bit weird. So I think what we've realised is that once we invent teleportation, you and Mark will turn up on time to meetings. There we go. (laughs) Well, I'm not promising. Would you rather have to fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> this is a ridiculous question. Great, isn't it? I think the first one, uh, a horse-sized duck, because ducks are quite cute, aren't they? So I think I would go for a mallard. Do you know the ones that are really pretty colours? So the, the you think it'd be cute if it was the size of a horse, though? Yeah. I think it I think it would maybe you're fighting be. it it's fighting you it's a big don't, beak don't try and talk me out of it I think I I think I could be a duck whisperer I think I'd be okay you could tame I think it I would ride maybe it. able to ride that a duck that cool. size exactly yeah you could fly on its back yeah but see the entrepreneur brain in my head right says a hundred duck sized horses people love miniature things I could make a fortune selling a hundred duck sized horses because t- imagine tiny little horses how cute is that you could have it in your house Right. No, imagine how annoying they would be. And although I was just going to say, imagine the mess they would make, but then imagine the mess that a, a horse-sized duck would make. But then the eggs would be pretty spectacular. So they would be you'd get the best omelette ever, wouldn't you? You'd be able to feed the street. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting question, though, actually. And I think it's probably about 50-50 in terms of what people go for. And it's really interesting, the reasons that people give to that, yeah. you know. Well, I'm going to sell right on my horse-sized duck, Mark. And imagine that's infinite income, isn't it? Because you've only got a hundred small ducks and once they're gone, they're gone. Exactly. Yeah. Fair point. <laughs> so yeah, I knew these these questions would never be simple. This next one could get a little bit deep as well, which is what piece of advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? Oh, I would say just keep taking advantage of opportunities. I think it takes ages to get confidence in yourself. I think for me, it probably was when I got to that kind of stage of, I kind of grew up at 40 when I got made redundant. And then the following year I was 40 and and I was in the process of kind of starting a business. But when you're young, you feel invincible, but actually you know you're not. And it's a weird feeling then, isn't it? So anywhere along the way that I've kind of got really good opportunities, it's because I've taken a bit of a risk or I've just had my antenna out for opportunities that might be something I might be interested in. So yeah, I think that would be the thing is don't wait and don't wait for other people to to give you opportunities either. You've got to make your own. The next question is, if you had a time machine, would you travel to the past or to the future? 
Oh, no, the future a million percent, because I think we'd all be flying then, wouldn't we? But yeah, I think that although the future is hugely scary when it comes to climate change and all of that, but there's, for me, there's something really quite inspiring about what the cities of the future are going to look like. I kind of see myself in cities of the future. I'm not a rural person at all. I mean, around and about us in Scotland has got some amazing places, but I get really claustrophobic away from the sea. So I had the absolute privilege recently of going to Dubai with work last year. And it's an incredible city. There was something about the excitement of a city like that that's innovating and has kind of got the possibilities, I think, of a city. I don't want a Mad Max city where everybody, you know, there's like an underground horribleness going on. I would hopefully be flying in a spaceship somewhere between the 116th floor of something there and the 125th floor of something else over there. But I'm not going to go to space because I don't like all that. (laughs) No. Interesting question, actually, this one. I always, a while back before I started doing the podcast and asking this question to people, I would have always probably said the past, like I'd like to go back to maybe specific events you know, and witness them and be at them. But I've kind of come around to saying, actually, I'd probably go to the future, but not because in my mind, I was always thinking people would want to go and see themselves. And I think I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to see myself in 10 years. I think I was going to go to the future. You'd have to go like 500 years into the future. For me, it's really interesting to see what technology would be like 500. Because you think about it, we've had more advancement in the last 20 years than we had in the last 100 years. Mm -hmm. And one thing I read, I can't, I wish I remember who said it, but they said that technology is advancing as fast as what it ever has today, but as slow as what it's ever going to advance in the future. Yeah. Because it's always speeding up. So I'd love to see if technology ever plateaus. We get to the, the limits of what humans can do with or create with technology. Is it going to look like what it looks like now or in 500 years' time? Will we have teleportation machines? Probably. <laughs> You know? Absolutely. So yeah, uh, I think I'd have to go far enough into the future where I'm not there. It would have to be a future that I don't exist in. Um, <laughs> but it'd also be nice to see if anything that you're doing right now, whether in business or personally, still has an effect. Like, is it something that is still being carried on? Like, does M3 still exist in 500 years? I don't know. Maybe M3 was the company that invented teleportation. <laughs> there we go. That's interesting. <laughs> And the final question is, is that, you know, the show's called Texas and whether you know or not, Alison, is Texas was a word that I kind of, it's nothing to do with Texas, it's nothing to do with the band either, but Texas was a kind of smash of technology and success because it's, as you know, like technology really helps enable businesses to be more successful. So the, the question is, is what does Texas look like to you in either your mind or within the chamber or... What's it in your words? So I think for me and for what the Chamber's doing at the moment, it's about using technology to make things better, uh, but to be innovative while we're doing it. So the Chamber's going through a real digital transformation at the moment. So that started by us recognising that we needed a new website, but we also needed to decouple our database where we had our customer data from the website. And what we did last year was invest in a whole bunch of new systems and processes. And that was about getting things easier for our team to do their jobs and do their jobs well. So rather than doing manual things that don't bring them joy, 
let's get them doing the things that they're really good at that they love and make sure the systems are well built in the background to kind of take away uh, some of the, I guess, the drudgery of what, what people had to do day to day. We're also future looking as well. So for me, tech says is about making everybody's job easier to let them concentrate on the bits that they want to do and that they like to do and that they do really well. And that's the internal bit. But then the external bit is how do we continually evolve and, and make things interesting for our customers and for the businesses that engage with us? So we're in the process of building that and that will build on what we've already built for customers, but it's already kind of, we're aiming to make it as future-proof as possible. We're looking at AI, we're looking at machine learning and how that will make it easier for us to engage with businesses to onboard them, to to kind of understand what is important to them. Because connect, communicate and develop, that is really important to us and systems can all make that so much better. But the metaverse is the thing that is exciting me at the moment. And I hardly know anything about it. So I'm interested to just understand what does that mean for the chamber? It can only mean really interesting developments for the chamber. So for me, that's the next tech test, I think, for the Chamber of Commerce is taking what we do. You have to continually modernise. Otherwise, you don't attract the right kind of customers and you don't evolve with what you're doing either. So for us, it's also about demonstrating what we're doing. So we're not getting everything right in any of the digital transformation that we're doing. But what we want to do is do it and talk about it and be open about the things that didn't work and be open about the changes and the positive impacts it's making on our business so that we can tell everybody else to do it. It's the same as apprenticeships. I really, really believe that we've got a responsibility to to get young people into our business and to support apprenticeships. And we've got the same responsibility for our digital innovation. So I think we'll all be wearing headsets before very long, but it won't even be headsets. It'll just be the glasses that we wear day in, day out. And we'll be, you know, connecting with people and we'll be sending emails with a flick of our eyebrow and stuff like that. You'll need to learn how to do the James Bond eyebrow. I'm not any good at that. Yeah. Too much Botox for that will kill kill the metaverse, (laughs) won't it? The Texas 10. It's interesting that you say something like that because obviously, I mean, Google Glass, remember, they're kind of wearable kind of tech like that. I don't know when that came out, but it seems like it was definitely more than five years ago. I'm not can't put my finger on it exactly. Maybe not ten years ago, but that was supposed to be this thing that people would start wearing around and start using that and augmented reality and all these things. It's it's funny how some tech kind of comes out. Sometimes it's not the right timing for it though. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this thing comes out, it didn't really quite kind of stick at the time, but a different company picks up years later and goes, actually now's the time for that thing to become mainstream or whatever so but it's really interesting and hopefully we are helping to make IT and tech kind of enjoyable so we've started seeing that a lot recently you know we want to make IT enjoyable for businesses because we know when it's not right it's not enjoyable experience for anyone and making sure that businesses can embrace technology and I think what's really interesting is that what was really expensive to do years ago is now becoming so much more affordable because technology always just becomes cheaper Right. I mean, obviously, you mentioned electric cars in in this conversation. I think that's what needs to happen next for electric cars. I know there's a huge percentage of people buying them in terms of new cars these days, but the cost is, whenever I speak to anyone about it, people just say, just the cost. Like, if I could get the equivalent electric car for the same price as the petrol or diesel, I would choose electric. 
So right now, it's still a privilege to be able to buy an electric car. Don't think the government does enough with their grants to encourage it. There's a little bit there, but there could be more done there. But yeah, it's all just becoming cheaper. And when things become cheaper, it becomes more accessible to more people and everything. It's also, and, and it's hard to do this, but it's it's hard to take a step back and take all the costs into consideration. It's a bit like we're always championing people use the Dundee to London flight. And, and we say to people, yeah, the cost of it might be a bit more, but actually by the time you factor in, and you're a person, so it's a bit different for you. But if you were in Dundee and you were driving to Edinburgh and you were parking and you were you know, think about the fuel or if you're a business that you're letting someone do that for a business purpose, they're going to take mileage from you. So, and then what about your time? Who wants to really get up at four o'clock in the morning and go to Edinburgh for an early morning flight? And I think with electric cars, so one of the things we are doing is we've just brought in a, a salary sacrifice scheme for some of the team. So I think what we need to understand is what's the net impact of the cost of that car? Because, you know, the, I haven't really seen anything yeah, and there may be something in this scheme that will show me this, but if I do the salary sacrifice, then it will cut down on the tax I pay and the national insurance contribution. And then what's the upkeep like? Because, you know, the, there's not the same upkeep costs of an electric car. The fuel is vastly reduced. So in the long run, and also I'm kind of doing it on purpose because if we don't get to net zero and if we don't get a 70% reduction in the carbon outputs by 2030. We don't get to net zero by 2045 or 2050. And bearing in mind that that training um, that we've been doing, it's recognised that the dates the government have set themselves are difficult to achieve. But the government can't set more realistic goals because none of us would accept it. So whatever we're doing is already too little. For me, I and you're right, there's a privilege in being able to kind of do something like that but it's also about a, a commitment to to doing it better because I can. I'm taking a little tiptoe into it in that I ordered a, a car for myself uh, which is a hybrid which I don't get mm-hmm. till August but and anyone that knows me will be shocked to go Mark you're getting something that's got some electric in it because I'm a petrol head and I'm a self-confessed petrol head but I still have my motorbike for that kind of fix of that. And it doesn't get ridden nearly enough to justify still having it. But yeah, taking that step into like the hybrid world to see what that looks like. I've still never driven a fully electric car myself. I don't think I've actually even been in a fully electric car. And I'm totally on board with the environmental stuff. We're very conscious about that here in the house and the products that we use and plastics and stuff. And it freaks me out the amount of packaging that, you know, as an IT company, when we buy stuff and it comes in, the amount of unnecessary packaging and stuff it? is ridiculous. And I remember, and I, mean, I should maybe try and dig this out, but I remember years and years and years and years ago on our social media, when we ordered like a stick of RAM, like upgrade or memory upgrade for our laptop or computer, I can't remember what it was. And I undid all the packaging and I laid all the packaging out on the table and I took a photograph of it. And I was like, mm-hmm. look at the amount of packaging for this thing. So there was like, there's like a jiffy bag and something to say that. So there's like five layers of packaging and it was all pretty much unrecyclable apart from like the the paper kind of brown package it was in initially but the rest of it was all single use unrecyclable for this one thing and I'm like that's just nuts so I've always been conscious of things like that I just wish with electric cars they could make them sound like real cars I think Um, we'll get over that though if it's if that's the thing that worries you I mean we drive this the one that the chamber's got it's an older model 
and it's really nippy. I absolutely love it. It's really great to drive. Mm. It's light, so it goes pretty fast. But yeah, it doesn't make that noise. Yeah. You just have, to, just have to make that noise. You made that noise yeah. when you were three, didn't you? When you were driving your, your own wee kind of toy car. So you just have to make that noise when you drive yeah. yourself. <laughs> but see, the thing is, as a cyclist, and again, you know, it's a good, there's another good thing about the environment and encouraging more people to cycle which is even better than driving an electric car because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's good for your health as well but as a True. cyclist electric cars then the near misses you can have because you don't hear them there's just road noise you don't hear anything else they're so close to you before you realise they're there so I think yeah. there needs to be something because the more electric cars come on the road the increase in accidents with pedestrians and cyclists is going to increase yeah. it's yeah. got to but these cars are all building in sensors like I've been looking at some of the cars over the last couple of days and you know they can literally on a motorway decide when it's time to overtake because they know how far cars are behind you they know how far cars are in front and I mean that's a wee bit scary but there should be enough safety built into cars that they will not hit pedestrian or somebody on a cycle for sure yeah yeah and then when you're in the metaverse soon the metaverse will tell you Mark if there's an electric car over your shoulder and it'll warn you (laughs) <laughs> yeah, hopefully. But yeah, this is a conversation for another time. Maybe the next episode with you is with electric cars and connected cars and then cybersecurity. And that's a big, scary uh, That's for sure. Because once every car is connected to the internet, now every car becomes a target for cyber criminals, just like your computers. And that, yeah. I've, I've done some talking about this already. And yeah, yeah it's a, a whole other thing. But yeah, there's new changes and regulations coming into the car industry to do with cybersecurity. I've already did a podcast on this a couple of months mm-hmm. back. Really so. so it is all quite scary, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You can take it for a test drive in your Tesla once you get one. <laughs> sure will. <laughs> Make sure you do, because I've never been in one. I've sat in one, but I've never actually driven one. Yeah, I'm not up for a backy on your bike though, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure if you're in your Tesla and you see me that you honk the horn so I know you're coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Alison. Um, it's been uh, great catching up with you. We'll look forward to continuing working with the Chamber and seeing what other technology comes your way and anything that yeah. we can help with so yeah, I appreciate your time uh, yeah no and thank you for asking me on it's been really interesting Texas is an M3 Networks podcast find out more at m3networks.co.uk